Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. Welcome aboard, everybody, to a great edition of Midrats. We're going to take you back a year ago and see what, what was at that point one of the big, big items in the maritime version of the national security arena that has faded into the background a bit with the events of the Russia-Ukrainian war. What we're talking about, of course, is AUKUS, the trilateral security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States that was signed back in September of 2021. We're bringing back today uh, a returning guest to Midrats to talk about this, and we're going to use his recent article uh, from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute as a starting off point. You can find that linked on the show page. And that returning guest is Dr. Alessio Padalano. He is the Professor of War and Strategy in East Asia and Director of the King's Japan Program at the Center for Grand Strategy at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Alessio, welcome back to Midrats. Delighted to join you today. Thank you very much for having me. I already pointed the listeners to your article um, over at uh, that outlined kind of some interesting details about the Australia UK US PAC that we're looking at in one year. And a lot of people who were were looking at it last year, uh, rightfully so, and still to this day, are really focused on the either if they come from a industrial standpoint, you know, how you can get uh, more construction of very complicated nuclear weapons in. You have people who uh, look at budgets and money. They look at people who look at manpower and training. And those are all, you know, significant challenges that other nations have gone through. And if you have good people and hard jobs doing things, they can accomplish it. But there's a lot more than just getting some nuclear submarines with a Royal Australian name attached to it. It, Briefly outline, if you could, some of those uh, uh, cooperation ingredients and really structures that have developed in the last year in the background that really expand the scope of of what this can accomplish. so thank you very much for, for, for drawing attention to this aspect, because I think it's absolutely crucial if you want to understand um, what AUKUS truly is about. Uh, because, yes, all the attention, and rightfully so, um, is on the submarine program. But AUKUS is, 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 is more than that, right? Um, AUKUS is, is a down payment into the idea that particular maturing technology of today will translate into the, uh, if you want, military edge of tomorrow. And that's not just about the submarine, because the, there is a whole sort of pillar two, as is known, um, AUKUS, about advanced capabilities, which focuses on um, hypersonic and counter-hypersonic missiles, cyber, space, quantum, 
um, artificial intelligence and how all of these will contribute to shape um, the battle space and awareness about it, the ability to operate in it and to retain advantage against other adversaries. So this is second component, the pillar two, this advanced capabilities piece. I think it's just as important as focus and uh, focus on, on the sunrings. And now let's let you know, let's always make a, a fairly simplistic point that people tend to forget. Focus is not about delivering results this year or next year. It's about delivering results with effects that will be generated um, from about 15 years from now, 17 years from now, and then for the following three to four decades. So we're talking about a 50 to 60 to 70 years commitment, uh, if you are to believe, um, between the submarine program and the second pillar advanced capabilities um, in terms of what we're talking about. Well, I think uh, there's been a lot of confusion as to whether this is or is not a a, uh, a security pact. It's, it's, it is not a security pact. It is a technology pact. And I think you point out in your article that, that uh, and a lot of people are amazed that the Australians canceled their, their submarine deal with the French to get into this agreement. But it looks like the French and the Japanese are interested in, in perhaps playing in this uh, community too. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, and this is exactly the, the key point in the sense that let's, uh, in order to, to, to get a better sense of the answer to your question, we need to go one step back, right? Because when the announcement came about, the first six months were about the drama that unfolded around the rolling out of the pact. Right. The key issue was that the way it was announced um, it put an enormous amount of strain on the relationship between France and Australia, France and the United States, and to a lesser extent, France and, and, and the UK. But, and that sort of kept to the attention um, of, of, of media coverage for the first six months. Then when the first details in the spring of this year started to come out, the story changed because as you said, the working group and the joint committees that across the three countries are, are sort of addressing the values issues, they're all very technical and technology-centric. There is no, if you want, software around AUKUS to suggest that at the moment this is a security alliance. But why it is important that they're focusing on the technical, sort of like a, putting in place the processes to this technical agreement to advance? Because leaving aside the submarines, which are a very sensitive piece of technology, um, the rest of the advanced capabilities are not necessarily an exclusive in principle kind of agreement. They are exclusive in the sense that you're going to be involved into the development of some of the most sophisticated and advanced capabilities of the future. So you need to guarantee a capacity for innovation, a capacity for information security that very few countries can bring to the table. So it's not exclusive by default, it's exclusive because of the topic to deal with. And in that sense, countries like France and Japan, particularly in this second pillar of advanced capabilities, uh, can really be back and, and sort of be part of the conversation as the different working groups evolve and as these technologies are identified quite specifically as to you know the ways in which will can 
uh, change, our understanding of the future of war and, and, and the relationship between technology and, and battle space dominance. Yeah, one thing I mentioned in the in the intro is I always found the people who got a little bit too wrapped around the axle talking about is a military alliance or not. It, it, that's really unnecessary. When you look, especially in the, the last one and a quarter centuries, uh, when when the big game comes, the U.S. and Australia uh, and the United Kingdom, plus or minus a couple of years on America's part, we usually align and help each other pretty well. There have been smaller wars in between where one to three players, you know, America didn't play around in Malaysia in the, in the 50s. Uh, the U.K. did not join us in Vietnam while Australia did. But in a large sense that, that if there is a significant problem and people are worried about alliances, the alliances are already in place. That will take care of itself. But you, know, you, you talked about something that I, I think the numbers tell a story that you can see where other traditional allies like, like France and other interested nations can come in because there were, in your article you outlined, there were 17 technical working groups of which nine were focused on the submarine program. So that gives you another eight in various areas. And that at the end of the game, uh, the goal is to not just focus on the submarine, but to, I'll just quote you for a second, quote, to elevate the intelligent and deterrent value of conventional capabilities, unquote. Because, again, that, that's one of the reminders that we're seeing even in the Russia-Ukrainian war, that conventional capabilities in both number and quality and training really matter. So that's another area that not only expands the scope of the relationship, but also opens some doors to other partner nations at some point in this multi-decade decade partnership. One hundred percent. If you allow me to sort of add a couple of things on, on, on this, please. Um, and so, so the, the the you know, think about it this way: AUKUS was the shocking announcement about this this new submarine deal. Yes, but at the end of the day, of the total of the working groups over AUKUS, it's just about the same number as advanced capabilities, right? Because one is nine and the other one is eight. And nine are just a summary. It's just because we know how complicated it is to get everything aligned. And let's also remind ourselves that notwithstanding the fact that US, UK, Australia are part of the Five Eyes community and they have already um, a much easier way to communicate with each other, that doesn't necessarily mean that they classify materials in the same way when it comes to technology. So the sharing is in place, if you want, but even that is a learning curve. Um, so imagine doing with others who don't come from a similar sort of like a level of, uh, of, of proximity. But um, keeping this aside for a minute, basically you've got another eight of these working groups that focus on completely different stuff. Also, of no less relevance is that well, the, 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 the nine working groups on the submarine, as I said, are about delivering capabilities in 2040 or starting as of around 2014. The advanced capabilities pillar actually is the one that is likely to pick up speed uh, 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 at a shorter period of time because um, there is um, uh, an investment at the moment into particularly hypersonic and counter-hypersonic missiles. There's a significant amount of investment on resilience of cyber capabilities. 
um, and studies about quantum and artificial intelligence, which, you know, sending the secrecy around it, it would appear that the approach within the AUKUS group is that the advanced capabilities filler is the one that is likely to start delivering capabilities in a, in a shorter period of time compared to the submarines. And that's where the sort of like the, the conversation that you see in the past few months, um, you know, we have a much better relationship between France and Australia. We have an absolutely incredibly strong relationship between uh, Japan and the United States, Japan and Australia, and Japan and the UK. So I would pay much closer attention that we've given so far to, to the advanced capabilities pillars because the capabilities that we're talking about are capabilities that we've all been playing with for quite some time. And they're all designed to offer some breakthrough, if you want, much closer to where we stand today than, than the submarine stuff. And in that context, I think that's where uh, a sort of relationship with, with close partners that have developed it over the past few years will increasingly become interesting. Let's not forget that just a couple of days ago, um, uh, you know, our new prime minister, uh, Liz Truss, met with Kishida. They talked about Taiwan. They talked about geoeconomics. They talked about uh, how they need to work together. We have a fighter jet next generation uh, program that we're developing with Japan. And then again, uh, our new foreign secretary today actually landed in, in Japan um, to continue that conversation. So I would not be surprised if five years down the road, we were looking at the advanced capabilities pillars to become really a place where new type of partnerships were really going to further turbocharge these advanced capabilities pillars. Who, who's upset uh, about this uh, AUKUS agreement? I, I know China is, for obvious reasons, but I understand Indonesia is not thrilled about it either. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. No. So I think that's uh, again that what we're going, um, uh, what we're talking about. You know, why, why, what we know so little about uh, uh, AUKUS, and and of course, Sol mentioned earlier on about all the technical aspects, particularly in regards to the submarine, right? The capacity to build, the manpower that that, that is required to man a nuclear uh, uh, industrial complex, and so on and so forth. But the point is also that one of the things that that quickly soon after the announcement uh, was perceived is that uh, Chinese, um, uh, uh, if you want talking points about AUKUS, were very much about the risk of of the arms raising in East Asia and um, in particular um, arms raising of nuclear submarines and then as, um, as, as, as almost a sort of in the natural corollary to that, Armed, uh, uh, so nuclear powered, um, nuclear armed submarines. And so a lot of the focus of the uh, uh, three countries really has been to engage with concerns about uh, the transfer of nuclear technology, how Australia would um, handle that. And, and, we, and we know from the August meetings of the International Nuclear Authority that they were quite satisfied with what had come together and presented in regard to the transfer. So that was a really important point. And in a way, it's been by far the most important response to what had been a consistent talking point of all those who had expressed the concerns about AUKUS. To a point that I think now there is a sense of confidence among the three countries that the story that has been put out as a, as a, as a, 
an agreement that fundamentally could uh, destabilize the security architecture in the region. That concern now has been considerably reduced because this question of technology transfer was successfully tackled. So we're looking at a much better situation, but you're absolutely right that within East Asia, I would say Indonesia and Malaysia had been really leading the voice of concern over this nuclear aspect, the nuclear proliferation, and very much what we've heard from their government felt very much aligned with what the Chinese had been going around talking about. After this August meeting of international um, uh, um, uh, 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 nuclear authorities, I think, I think that's now something that we can consider as being tackled head-on. And now we can start to focus on looking at the details of, the, of, of, of how to implement really at least still a one. It, that reminded me, and I always encourage everybody, when in doubt, go go get a chart, or better yet, find somebody who has a globe. It always can be very enlightening, especially when you overlay it. When people talk about security and economics, and they talk about the the importance of the the standards and the procedures on the high seas that enables the global trade that we all rely on. You know, you mentioned Indonesia, you mentioned Malaysia. The amount of, uh, when you look at the Indo-Pacific uh, theater, uh, that that body of water, so much that not just the area but the globe relies on, um, goes through that area. So you would think that anything would enhance security. And there are people who will, you know, nitpick the, the point I'm going to make and may argue it, but I, I'm willing to defend it. But for about two centuries, the Anglosphere, it was mostly the, 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 the British Empire, and then uh, between the sec- two world wars, transferred over to the U.S. Anglospheric nations have established something that everybody assumes is the normal, which is a global system. And since World War II, we've had a whole bunch of international organizations that have built on this, where the, the global commons on the high seas, everybody takes that for granted, that historically has not been true. And you had a paragraph, again, from your article I wanted to quote for you. Quote, AUKUS worldview is one that stems from the recognition that the maritime foundations of the international order stand vulnerable to state coercion. Safe and secure shipping lanes and attacks undersea cables are engines fueling economic prosperity and political stability. This is true in the Indo-Pacific as elsewhere, unquote. So, what you're outlining about the initial concerns with Malaysia and Indonesia with time, as people have had a chance to digest and see what direction they're going in, if this multi-decade program enhances and reinforces and continues what the, the global economic system has enjoyed, plus or minus a world war here or there, um, uh, a global standard on the high seas, do you see more of those objectives fading into the background uh, outside of those that kind of look what we saw in Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands re- recently, state coercion from other powers coming in and trying to disrupt it? Well, 100%. I mean, we have to be sort of – we have to be honest. There's, there's, there's three points that are essential um, in what you just mentioned. Number one, generally speaking – Naval professionals, uh, whether it is Navy, chiefs of staff, and so on and so forth, are not always um, at their ease to argue this fundamental point that Navy's matter and forces writ large, they are about uh, 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 
protecting this fundamental pillar of the international order. We can't provide the case of the Navy in terms of, of, of threats, in terms of the capability required to address threats, but at the end of the day, those threats are a function of what stands at risk if, if one does not engage with them. And that is the stability of the international order upon which our prosperity is built. And our prosperity is built on movement of goods and movement of data. One is shipping, the other one is undersea cables. Uh, in that sense, you cannot take the maritime outside the international order. And that should be a fundamental way of presenting um, a case, a naval case, in any country whose economy is an open economy that fuels open societies and rests on that kind of stability of the international order. So perhaps we don't, we don't always make our case in the best possible way by linking why maritime forces are so essential. That's, that's the, the first thing to say. The second thing I'm holding from that is that uh, because we don't necessarily make that case, um, others might not see and therefore realize the extent to which in a competition space, in a space in which state-on-state competition is back to the fundamental feature of international politics, and the maritime, maritime stability stands vulnerable to state action. We're seeing in the South China Sea, practically since 2009-10, but certainly 2012 onwards, we're seeing in the East China Sea, we're seeing it pretty much anywhere there is contestation. And and in particular, in places like the South China Sea, why do we hear about it? Because that kind of contestation at sea has wider repercussion internationally because of how it affects the transmission of data and the transportation and the flow, the unfettered flow of goods, right? So in, in this regard, um, if we can make our argument better, then it becomes easier to have a conversation about why and how state actors sort of present a challenge and to the stability of the maritime order. And that leads to a third point, that once we start doing point one and point two, then we can start saying, hey, I've got a second, but have you seen what has happened just in the last nine months since the beginning of 2022? We've had state action creating a significant disruption of the circulation of fundamental raw material, grain, in the Black Sea, and look at the repercussion, how global they are, right? So when you say state on state, you know, presented through coercion, can present um, a serious challenge to the maritime, uh, to the international order and maritime stability, well, you know, that's a very good example. But there's another example that I think is very important because it's not just about the circulation of goods and, and raw materials. Again, the point about the undersea cables is equally important, given how reliance for financial services on internet and the flow of data. Now, the best example of this, and in recent memory, one that we can all sort of uh, relate it to, is what happened to Tonga at the beginning of the year, when the volcanic eruption created a disruption in the underwater sea cables that literally linked the country to the rest of the world. And the country went without any significant internet with dire consequences for their economy, for the better part of the world. Now, imagine state actors um, having access to disrupt um, underwater sea cables. And we know that happened because we know that countries like China, which is some of the most advanced um, 
um, uh, did research, marine research submarines. So submarines, uh, it was only job, is literally to go deep dive to three, 4,000 meters and conduct research. Now, from that step, they have the capacity to actually identify where cables are and interfere with them. That is an absolutely scary force and something that it's not down in the future. It's something that it's a reality that we need to sort of start to sort of uh, relate to. And again, events in Ukraine on a daily basis remind us of how fragile international order is and how the maritime stability is linked to that. So why actually the instability of the maritime system brings them to instability in the international order and, 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 and the political stability. Because imagine, for example, what has happened in countries that uh, are politically more vulnerable to the lack of raw materials, disruption of their economy, and therefore social unrest inside um, a domestic space. So these three elements need to be sort of borne in mind. And we need to be quick at using examples from the Black Sea to Tonga to many others over the years to remind ourselves that that system is not as resilient as one assumes to be, and its vulnerability to state action can have really, truly dire consequences. And in that sense, AUKUS really is about maintaining that underwater edge, that underwater superiority, if not dominant, to allow conventional capabilities to give a moment of pause to those who are trying to disrupt that system. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the concerns, uh, as I understand it, by the, by the Australian uh, shipyard workers and stuff, is that there have been some recent reports that the, uh, the initial buy of, of nuclear submarines may be from the U.S. while Australia spools up its its uh, industrial capacity. Uh, are, are, do you have any comments on that? Uh, yes, I think at the moment it's just um, at the moment if we wanted to avoid it to to to, to stroll into La La Land, I would just wait until spring 2023 to make any judgment call uh, because here we're not talking about you know um, uh, something some, something easy. It's not as like oh there's a submarine a nuclear submarine hanging out there. I'm going to have one of those and bring him over to Australia. It doesn't work like that. You don't materialize the professional workers both in the yards and both in the maintenance and at sea manning the submarines overnight. And, and, and of course, there's a lot of, of, of fear, frustration, tension. You want to have capabilities delivered as soon as possible. But the fact that the initial sort of timeline is around 2040, it's not because, you know, um, people don't want to get it done. It's just because these things take time to grow organically. So, yes, in the ideal world, would you like to have a mid-short-term fix? Of course, that would be ideal. But there are some three things that to me are completely sort of um, unclarified. Number one, the fact that the United States or the UK, for that matter, have a capacity to actually take their um, construction plans and change them by giving one boat to the Australians in the meantime. So that to me seems an assumption that has to be validated somehow because evidence suggests that both in the UK and the US there are domestic consideration about submarine fleets that need to be taken care of. Number two, second assumption, okay, let's assume that magically Harry Potter comes in and with his wand materializes an extra sub for the Australians. 
Great. Um, who's going to run the submarine? Because last time I checked, it's not that the Australians have got submariners to run nuclear subs uh, right now or within the next couple of years. Where do you get the lieutenants, the lieutenant commanders, and the commanders to actually run this thing? And for as much as it could be a mixed crew, why would you think about giving either the commissioning or a submarine from your line of development to Australia, which eventually would be US, UK, predominantly command? And that again, there's an assumption in there, where, is, you know, where are the people who actually do? Where are the, the spare people to, to, to pass on? And then that's the third element, the assumption here. Okay, let's assume that you build this thing. Uh, where do you maintain it? How do you set up the logistical chain that, that provides the guarantees for the sub to be properly maintained in Australia while it's operating? Because surely Australia is a long way off from anywhere. If they get an extra submarine or a submarine between now and 20, uh, you know, the, the late 2020s or early 2030s, where are they going to maintain it? Where are where is the infrastructure to do so? Um, or can they just decide and send it to the US or UK for their maintenance? That doesn't sound a particularly logical solution. So I'm sure that between now and the spring of 2023, when the design and the proposal will be chosen, we will have a better idea what the actual timeline is. And, and in the meantime, however, while I understand the frustration that people want to get this thing sort of coming out as quickly as possible, I think there are also a number of assumptions that need to be checked before one can make any judgment call as to what other alternatives exist. I think you, you touched on something that I think we've seen in other areas before where people senior up high, they have – Here's a great idea, you know, the, the whole, the classic good idea fairies. We got to do this. We got to do this. And then at the staff table, you have the usual, the least popular people on a staff is you'll have the human resources person raise their hand and ask you, okay, how many people do you have trained and how long will it take for you to train it? And then you usually have your maintenance guy who raises his hand and says, we don't you know, we we can't fix. Yes, your sh paper says you have six units, but only three of them are deployable. And of the three that are deployable, only two are four motion capable. So you can't send six; you can stick two. So it looks like while people would love for to be able to snap their fingers and make it happen, I th I think we're looking at, at two big problems, and you can take them together or take them one at a time. But first, there's the manpower, because you can't make the skipper of uh, a nuclear submarine happen overnight. Even when you take care of the security information, when you take care of the technology transfer information, whether it's from a U.S. yard or a British yard, you have to be able to have people who understand the unique requirements and capabilities of both operating and ma maintaining and building, for that matter, a nuclear submarine versus a conventional submarine. And then you also have the industrial capacity issue. One thing that we've seen mm -hmm. the last few decades is I like to call them, I love them to death and they're important, but the green eye shade efficiency cult where we created this, uh, and a lot of Americans and civilians, well, not just Americans, everybody has seen the fragility of the global trade system and the interlocking supply chains. Well, we also have created in the last few decades, data allows you to do this, a relatively, believe it or not, 
efficient military industrial complex. It's finely tuned based upon we're going to build this many at this time, but that doesn't give you the flex that you might have seen 80 years ago in an industrial system that wasn't as tightly run or you know focused on long-term efficiency in that regard. Uh, for instance, we had last month the uh, the admiral in charge of building the Columbia class ballistic missile something basically came out and said we as in the American nuclear submarine industrial infrastructure we don't have any flex and I don't have as much visibility on the uh, the, the British industrial base as well but my assumption is because they are significantly smaller than the U.S. Uh, both in the, their spend, but also in their population at the end of the day, to be able to flex, to really build anything. Too. So we're really talking about, I think, the aggressive people are saying 2035. I think the, the plan I've heard most people talk about is 2040. That does sound about right if you want to send, which I know uh, the Australians uh, have already sent to one or, or both at least, the U.S. and the British nuclear submarine community to get people started to get trained and experienced in it and then get the industrial infrastructure up to step to where it needs to be. I don't see how you can make either one of those move any faster. I couldn't agree more, 100%. I mean, look, uh, let's let's reverse engineer from from the the U.K. end. So there's a – and and this – what I'm about to say speaks to, 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 to both elements that you just mentioned, the manpower and the capacity. Um, first of all, I think one of the best speeches I've heard in a while was the very first speech that our first lord, the new first lord, uh, gave back in February. Shortly after he sort of uh, become first lord, his first thing was um, uh, he gave it actually um, uh, in an in, uh, industrial complex. Uh, I think it was the cutting of a cylinder, one, one of the 531 figures. And, and he made a very important point, words to the effect, uh, something along the lines of, and, you know, even if tomorrow morning the government were to give me a massive check, it's not that we have the industrial capacity in this country to transform that check into capabilities and units that we, we you know, we can materialize out of clean air. And I think he was absolutely right. And he was making this point because, because he's been very clear about the fact that we need more capacity. We need greater resilience. We need uh, we need we need uh, to be less, if you want, efficient <laughs> and, and potentially more effective. Uh, we need to shift our focus in this regard. And I think he's absolutely right. But it'll take time because industrial capacity, like most complex things, maybe it's our technology-intensive organizations. And so everything that is required to operate them doesn't materialize overnight. You need to invest into it. You need money, and it takes time. Then once it is in place. The fruits that you're going to harvest um, are going to come in much more quickly. At the beginning, it's painful. So, from a capacity point of view, I couldn't agree more with you. On the past, on the other side, however, um, in the UK, we're soon to be we're soon going to be completing uh, the astute class. And even though we have one only one place in Barrow where we build our submarines, that means also that by the late 2020s, we will have to start thinking about uh, next generation submarines. Um, which raises an interesting opportunity, especially if, as the current government seems to have suggested, that they want to increase the 3% of GDP, we might have more uh, cash to invest into crucial capabilities. So a combination of AUKUS, 
race through the percent of GDP and the completion of the SP class with the next class to be sort of start to be thought about, this might create an opportunity to actually get to get greater capacity needed. Still, does that make the 2040 timeline easier to get to 2035? I'm not so sure, to be honest, um, because there are a number of moving parts into this. And this leads to the second point, manpower. So the command qualification process for a submarine commander in the UK, the, the Persia, it's an extremely taxing uh, 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 process. The attrition rate is very, very high. And I cannot see, given the sensitivity and the responsibility that uh, a nuclear submarine skipper has, that they would want to change that. So, you know, how do you materialize, as you say, you know, how do you get someone in a position to be lieutenant commander or commander to actually get one of these boats out, even if you assume that you bring them to the U.S. and U.K. for initial training? That'll take time. You cannot find, you know, uh, experienced nuclear submarine skippers under a pumpkin. And so, 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 so that kind of timeline of 10, 15 years, if you start now, you still need 15 years to get someone in a position to do that. I mean, that's, 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 that's what it's required. So the capacity and manpower, and manpower also, you can inject the new manpower, you can expand the, the, the system. But again, that doesn't change the minimum timeline to get to the proficiency necessary. So on both points, I completely agree with you that that timeline 2035-2040, it's very harder to change. And frankly, why would you, in that sense, um, at risk of subs that either are not kept to the necessary standards or are not manned as proficiently, proficiently as, as you want them to? I think that's way too much at risk to try to push too quickly into something that doesn't necessarily would pay the additional uh, dividend. Now, also because this isn't just about the submarines. We also have the pillar two, the advanced capabilities. So we have other things that in the conventional context might actually buy us that minimum time necessary to get it right by 2040 and keep that as a really hard timeline by which you end up, you want to see these things coming into the water. One of the things I, I was surprised to learn was that Australia has no nuclear power plants. So this concept of having a, a nuclear submarine uh, seems to me to me to be quite would be quite controversial. There is it is, is this kind of a a one way to get them to, to look at uh, nuclear power as a to help climate change issues. So I think this is changing, and and I think what is interesting is that the new Labour government um, is really pushing the the climate change agenda in a way that the previous government was not doing, and the responses have been positive because you know Australia really, if you look at the demographics and and the statistical data. Uh, it changes greatly, right? Uh, but certainly this question of uh, the, the, the nuclear power as, as, as a clean energy, it's of particular appeal. But I think this goes back to a point that, that I think you both mentioned earlier on. Uh, you know, uh, from certain parts of Australia to get into uh, uh, a, you know, a proper patrol deployment in, 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 in the space that is relevant to Southeast Asia, 
it takes a good seven to ten days steaming, right? So, so a nuclear-powered submarine is, is is a very logical and sensible solution in that context compared to any anyone else. The only country that offers um, long-range um, uh, long-range diesel submarines is Japan, and it does that very efficiently, but also at a great cost from an operational point of view. And in fact, if the situation in Japan was not uh, sort of from a public perception as averse to nuclear uh, propulsion as it is, um, but would, uh, you know, the, the JMSDF, the Japanese Navy, has always had uh, a school of thought that suggested that nuclear-powered submarines would be a more ideal choice for them too. So, so I think that the argument for a nuclear-powered submarine in Australia has been made, has been heard, and, and is and is well embraced across the air. And now with the government that is looking at this, 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 this uh, renewing the agenda on climate change, I think you, you, you won't have a problem in that direction. It does actually speak and tick, you know, it ticks a number of boxes. Yeah, I mentioned earlier one thing that uh, it's kind of one of my hobby horses, but I like to bring it out because, especially for Americans, I, I, intrinsically, I'm confident that, that Brits and Australians are very conscious of this, but I don't think a lot of Americans do. It's kind of the military version of in American political domestic recourse. People say, look at what Denmark's doing. I'm like, Denmark has 5.5 million people, and it's the size of Maryland. You can't, you can't upscale that. But uh, when, we look at the, when we look at our partners in, in the U.K. and Australia, when you look at the population, the U.K. is only 20% of the population of the U.S. Australia is only 8%, though geographically it's about the same size as the U.S. and China, plus or minus 10%, I think. Uh, from a GDP point of view, the number is even more stark because per capita GDP in the U.S. is much larger than it is, especially in the U.K. So GDP, U.K. only has 13% of the GDP America does. Australia, only 6%. And defense spending uh, – it's easy to think that it's not too far away if you just look at percentage of GDP. Yes, the U.S. spends 3.7, but the Brits spend 2.2 and the Australians 2.1. But that's the difference between 778 billion, 59 billion, and I think it's 27.5 billion for the Australians. Huge difference in capabilities. And you make a really good point in the article that. Uh, especially for those that like to play around in what people see in the future. People like to talk about, well, in the, in the future, in the maritime domain, we're going to have directed energy weapons. The, uh, the, the future weapon that will always be the future weapon, perhaps, rail guns, uh, various <laughs> types of uh, surface, subsurface, and aerial unmanned or uncrewed, whatever you want to call them, uh, assets. All that's high technology that requires a lot of investment that a, a lot of nations can't simply do. And like we've seen, again, I, because if what most people are looking at in the last, last year, when you look at the Russo-Ukrainian the Russo war going on right now, when you look at the Russian GRAD multiple rocket launcher system that's a bunch of dumb weapons going down downrange, very scary, very effective. It's been getting the job done for decades. Compare that to the hyper-accurate uh, HIMARS system that we have um, in the West that can 
can take out a bridge from a hundred kilometers away just by taking out okay let's take out the let's take out the right lane but leave a left lane you can do it that accurately that these technology differences in the future um and I don't want to sound like Bob work who's you know talking about reset and all that stuff I don't think it's that radical, but when you look at smaller nations who have uh though our ancestors had a high tolerance for loss. I don't think the any of the nations that we've talked about mostly tonight are willing to put a couple of hundred thousand of their young men and women uh, over the top to be gunned down in the course of a few months. That when conflict happens, which it will, those nations that have been able to partner together with larger nations or to aggregate their resources are really going to be able to have a big difference to better defend or promote their national interests. And you stated, and again, I'll, I'll quote you for you. Quote, this is the second reason why AUKUS matters strategically. In a context in which advanced technology will matter increasingly more to maintain a military edge, only trusted partners will be able to achieve the most from defense collaboration, unquote. And not necessarily we consider all of our allies trusted partners. We've seen that the F-35 program. So is that what you see either as a primary driver or one of the secondary benefits for the U.K. and especially Australia in this partnership? Is really looking at mid-century, you know, what can we do to not just match but to give us an extra edge? Um, so hard to say whether it is a primary driver, but I think it is. Um, certainly, uh, look, uh, given the fact that the Australians have always been in the driving seat, um, let me let me uh, let me take this in reverse from a sort of start with the Australians and then go to the Australians. When we did the integrated review, which was published um, in uh, March 2021, uh, the key point that the integrated review was trying to make is that the UK needs to think again to be an asymmetric power. We have a few islands offshore, because the European continent. Our game is not that we're going to provide men to defend somewhere in Europe. It is about providing uh, the uh, parts of that, but more importantly, the marathon dimension, and specifically, the technological edge. You're absolutely, in terms of GDP, in terms of people, we are relatively small country. We have the largest number of top 25 universities in the world, um, which is a pretty remarkable thing. London, where I live, um, has the largest concentration of top 25 university of any other capital in the planet. Right? So, 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 so there is a genuine idea that we've got asymmetric advantages, we need to take advantage of it. How do we do this? Well, by partnering with the critical mass that our most trusted partners can bring to the table. And the United States has edge, has critical mass. It's, it's a marriage, if you want, made in heaven. It's the ideal solution. That's how you bring whatever you can bring to the table to what your partners have. And together, you create that sort of um, key enabler, the multiplying factor. Now, if that's true for the United Kingdom, that is absolutely crucial and vital for Australia for the very reasons that you mentioned. The ability for the Australians to actually up the game and at the same time uh, sort of play to the strength of the geostrategic uh, position that they have, the know-how and expertise that they have, 
um, both in the region and in some specific advanced uh, sort of uh, areas of technology. These elements, when you start aggregating them together, and they truly make a difference. And it makes a difference, if you want, to the uh, larger partner in a relationship, because even the most powerful country these days cannot keep up itself with the pace of technological change. And it is particularly important for the smaller sort of partners um, in terms of, 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 of critical mass, um, because of what we've just discussed. So absolutely essential in this, there's two assumptions. One, that technology, and in particular, not all technologies, not a revolution in military affairs kind of approach, but there's, there's key maturing technologies that we are starting to understand will provide us very likely an edge, which in terms of military operations, which comes to shelf, do make a difference. And the second assumption is, we cannot do that by ourselves, but if we pull together with our closest partners, because you're only the most trusted partners you can do this with, because the sensitivity of this technology is one such that you don't want to slip it away. That's what we're learning from the activities from, from the war in, in Ukraine. The Russians are paying dearly the fact that our military edge is now being made available to the Ukrainians with a procedure it is absolutely lethal. That's what makes the difference at the end of the world, at the, at the end of the day. And these two assumptions are absolutely central to the way in which the Australians are thinking about AUKUS, the way British are thinking about AUKUS, I would argue. And, and I presume that's the way also the United States are thinking about AUKUS. Technology and key technologies in the pound bubble space, a superiority will evolve. And two, pooling and aggregating as a way to offset uh, individual uh, sort of limitations, both in critical mass and in other areas. Uh, I'd like to remind our leaders, that, I mean, our uh, listeners, that you can go to the White House uh, website, and if you look up AUKUS, uh, they have some pretty good summaries of what's happened so far and some of the discussions. But they, I just put that out there. But really, we need to talk about uh, infrastructure for maritime commerce and stuff. I mean, is this uh, Australia and, and the UK are both island countries? The US, in many ways, is an island country. Uh, it, are I think the question that uh, John Conrad asked is: Do the Australians and and and, and uh, Royal Navy have a closer relationship with shipping and maritime commerce than than you your perception of the US Navy? Sorry, um, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll speak, to, I'll, I'll speak for, the, for the UK, although I was, um, in March I was in uh, Australia at the uh, big expo that they do, uh, the Massam Expo that they do there, and I had an opportunity to engage with um, uh, uh, stakeholders from the industry, and if you wanted, the Royal Australian Navy was hosting the conference that was providing the intellectual muscle around it. So even just that, the size, the scale, the importance of that conference and the expo related to it gives you an indication that there is a communication between the Royal, the Royal Australian Navy and, and, and the shipbuilding sector. In fact, there is a, a strong conversation that Australia also is making a conscious decision to make Australia as a home base for even shipbuilders uh, from across the world that wanted to operate in the region. And for example, the class of um, OPVs that the, uh, 
Australian Navy is purchasing from German shipbuilder. And it's an interesting thing because the, the shipbuilder itself, they are setting shop in Australia and they will be, they'll be using their Australia sort of paying uh, of operations as a way to access um, other markets in the region. And, you know, in the region that is as centric as being the Pacific, OPVs are, are everybody's choice. Um, uh, uh, on 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 the average day and twice over the weekends and most things. So so I think I think in Australia, even though I I, I would sort of like a, I wouldn't push it too far. I would say there's a clear sense that the conversation between the shipbuilding industry and the Australian Navy is very better. Here in the UK, we had a national maritime uh, 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 um, shipping strategy or, or strategy around the ship. Uh, shipbuilding industry, which came out before the integrated review, um, and and that the the door maybe not only was in conversation as the uh, the um, department trust thought was was crafting it, but also um, uh, had been sort of particularly proud to go around and talk about. So you had you know in the in the UK, what was remarkable was that you'd have senior naval leadership going around talking about how cool it was that the shipbuilding industry had got together to come out with this vision and a vision that made perfect sense and in fact that that rewarded where the Royal Navy wanted to go. And in some respect the the existence of these strategies did inform how the integrative review approached uh, defensive security um, in the medium long term. So it is absolutely clear to me that the level of conversation, the depth of conversation between the industrial sector and naval leadership has to go hand in hand because you can have the most wonderful ideas about your force structure. But if you cannot execute it, and industry is essential for that, what are we talking about? Well, actually, I'll tell you, one thing I took away from here in the last hour that I want to look at, I, I really like the point that you talked about. Um, I'll use a phrase you didn't, but the intellectual capital that not just AUKUS represents, but you mentioned Germany. We also mentioned Japan early on, if you want to, in France. In Japan, if you were building a team, regardless of size, but you're looking for not just proven intellect, but depth of intellect uh, and a history of successful innovation in fighting problems, you'd be hard-pressed to, as an American to find a better combination than British, Australians, Japanese, Germans, French. We really – it's a big challenge, which, of course, we haven't really said the, the, the C word, China, um, <laughs> all sides. Uh, the Chinese are impressive in a variety of ways, but I'd much rather be on that little polyglot team that can be, <laughs> it can be difficult around the dinner table, but in a good way, um, than that that monolith that we're all kind of concerned about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be chewing on that for a bit, and it and I appreciate your patience with a couple of our technical issues early on, but it really has been a, a great informative hour, Alessio. Uh, before we head off, if Listeners wanted to keep track of what you're working on. Where's a good place for them to keep an eye on you? And what are you working on right now that we might have the uh, pleasure of reading down the road? 
Um, so, so social media on Twitter, because usually I do keep um, everything that is coming out. And, and lately, as you can imagine, the, the political situation is very fluid internationally and in the UK when it comes to the uh, maritime and, and in the Pacific world. So lots of op-eds, lots of uh, policy uh, reports. Um, and that's definitely something that you can track me on at Alessio Nabel, uh, one word. Um, and that's probably the fastest way to get the latest thing that I've been doing. And, and, and I've actually started working on, on a book called um, Provisionally Steel and, 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 and Statecraft, uh, Why Navies uh, Shape the World We Live In. And really is about raising the game. I want, I want a conversation in which partners of the United States, United States, can have a, a singing sheet from where start thinking about why Navies matter to international order. How, why the world we live in is as cool as it is in open societies and open economies because maybe it's allowed, allowed that to happen. In a, in a situation where global politics are coming back to state and state competition, that's a fundamental question that we need to start asking ourselves. And we need to start rethinking the way we approach our communication, our messaging among ourselves and with the people that pay the money to get navies off the ground and in the water. So that's, that's what I've been working for the, for, for the next year. And, and there will be um, uh, intellectual output coming along the way over the next few months. Well, Alessio, that book has already got me excited waiting for its publication. That's right inside the wheelhouse. And, uh, wow, what an important uh, topic to be investing your time in. I, I wish you the luck finishing that up, and I'm really looking forward to reading it and look forward to the uh, next opportunity we have to talk sometime down the road. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. Cheers, guys. And I hope it was okay. There was a little bit of feedback uh, at times in my headphones, but I hope it was coming through clear at your end. No, the, uh, down in the deep south, that's what we call home style. So, no, it's, uh, it's just a great <laughs> okay. opportunity yes. to have you. And I appreciate everybody uh, who's been joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, I hope everybody has a great Navy day. Cheers. Strand and Piccadilly, or you'll be to blame. For love has fairly drove me silly, hoping you're the same. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Oh, <laughs> oh,